From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome to a full hour of sports analytics here on SiriusXM. This is Cade Massey with the whole crew. Adi Weiner is here. Shane Jensen is here. Eric Bradlow is here. Glad you guys are as well. We're going to be in here for the full hour. We've got a guest in the second half of the hour, Kevin Cole joins us for the second half. We talk NFL in the first half, open lines. As we used to say, you guys can track us down online to give us feedback, comments, suggestions, criticism, whatever you got at W Moneyball is where you can find us on Twitter at W Moneyball. We love to hear from you. We follow all of our guests. We tweet about the world of sports and sports analytics, and we love getting feedback, suggestions, hearing about your studies. Sometimes people um, take, take, take some, idea and go off and run some data we love seeing that kind of stuff throw us anything you got at w moneyball on twitter gentlemen we are recording on tuesday afternoon as we typically do the show will go up on sirius xm first thing in the morning be replayed a few times we'll get the podcast up sometime tomorrow as well last night was the national championship game the final game of the bcs era it matched michigan and washington there was a real split opinion. Michigan, Michigan went in that game four-point favorite, but you read any article, like, for example, The Athletic. They talked to all their college football writers. There must have been like 12 on this column. It might have been 6-6. Six, six. Everybody had a reason, and half those reasons happened to favor Washington. Turns out it wasn't so close. Turns out that Michigan, I mean, look, it was not as bad as it looked by the final score, but Washington, Washington looked behind the eight ball kind of from the beginning. They're in the middle. We thought they might make a run. And then in the end, they really got overpowered. Did y'all watch much of it? Did you enjoy it? Did you, did you, what, what, what's your assessment after the, after the fact? Just quickly, two quick points. So I watched the whole game. Um, I, you know, after the first play or the first series, remember, I always give my comment. I've said it for what, almost 10 years here on Wharton Moneyball that I can tell once I see my offensive line against your defense, what's going to happen in the game. I was like, Michigan's going to overpower this team. So Michael Penix, even though he's, he's a very, very good quarterback, he's just not going to get enough opportunities to do something great. That was the first thing. Second, Michigan was able to create pressure with a four man rush. So that's going to be problematic. Um, but the third thought I had was, you know, and you said it to open Cade. While the score final score was thirty four to thirteen, you if you're a, a Washington fan, the score was twenty to thirteen. Washington com, uh, completes a forty five yard pass down to the Michigan twenty. The guy in Washington clearly holds, but if they don't call that, it could very well be twenty twenty midway through the third quarter, and then all of a sudden we could be talking about a different ball game. So while it is true that Michigan was the better team, Michigan overpowered them, I have to admit, as I look back now on the game, if that one play had been called differently, I I could put some probability that's not tiny on a different outcome for the overall game. Let me give you one one argument in that favor is at some point being two touchdowns down, Michigan – had no question that Washington was going to throw the ball. So it wasn't just a matter of the defensive Good line point. overpowering the offensive line. Game situation dictated they could pass, they could rush, you know, with no concerns. And they, and they, and that's you have to keep that in mind when you see what you see at the end of the game there. Adi. Well, I mean, the thing is, is that college football, especially even at the top level, has a lot of variance. And what you're doing is pointing that out and as a source of where that variance comes from. Slow, very small changes in big plays can result in very different uh, scores and and so to me I mean I I don't really have much knowledge about college football I watch somewhat sporadically I do try to watch the big games and um, I have severely jet lag so I fell asleep in the middle of yesterday just doing as best as I could to stay up but what struck me is that the college that college football at the elite levels is starting to look a little bit more like professional than it used to in my eyes um, in my eyes the college football game looked Obviously, they're you can't compare them. They're not in the same. They're not in the same uh, field. But it just it looked like a lot more like a professional game looks to me from from an, from a from a bird's eye view. I don't know if that's something that you an an opinion. You're in what sharing. sense, Adi? In, in terms of scheme or in terms of athletes or what? Uh, no, that, it can't be in terms of athletes. It's just like you might like there was. Uh, it, just the sort of the big plays happening very frequently, lots of big long runs, big long drives, you know, and boom, right after the other, which of course leads to these big scoring games. You don't see that in, in the in professional games very much. 
sort of like someone just like running people over and just um, 19 yard runs, 25 yard runs, <laughs> those kinds of things used to, I, in my recollection, you'd see them a lot in college football. You don't see them in, 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 the, in the professionals very often. And, and the last few games, I watched a bunch of the, 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 the high quality games that there've been a lot this year. It just looked more like the way a professional game looks to me. Look, the only so you watch some Eagles games where they're just not even covering the middle of the field. If you want to see some big plays, <laughs> look, well, it's not, I'm not saying all the games. You just, you know, it's a, it's, it's. They're clearly, they much smaller. The college athletes, right? And that can be explained a lot of that. There's also much more variance between the top and the bottom and the middle, which you don't see in the professionals. They all pushed up to the top. And I'm wondering whether that's that variance is diminishing. Um, given the age of the players is probably getting older. What, what could? I mean, I'm totally wrong. Or is there an explanation? I agree with your characterization of the two sports. I think it's one of the reasons I like college football. There's more play-by-play variance. Um, Mm -hmm. If I had to give you an uh, ad hoc explanation for last night, we got Michigan, which is is a little bit more pro style. A little bit, they're not big downfield passers. They're not. They have a running quarterback, not a running quarterback. They have a quarterback who can run, but they're not like a dual threat quarterback, which you see often in college. So Michigan leans a little bit that way. And then the way they defended Washington, they forced Washington to throw underneath all night long. Normally, Washington is much more vertical, which is a little bit more traditional college. And so in that respect, you didn't see a typical Washington game. So I think I think you might have seen a little bit of an aberration, but it's an interesting observation. Eric? The only thing I was going to say is, trust me, in my mind, there's no asterisk next to Michigan at all in the sense that they beat Ohio State, Alabama, and Washington. But if I wanted to put a 2% asterisk, the game now that I really want to see, I really want to see is Michigan play the actual number one team in the country, which is Georgia. Oh my God. If you know, that's the game I really would have loved to see. Because remember, Georgia was number one all season long, two time defending national champion. Alabama, what was it, fourth and twenty nine against Auburn? Alabama wouldn't even have been in the playoff. Um it it there's no asterisk, but boy, I'd love to see Michigan play Georgia. No, and I mean, that really does say something, because at, po- at a 2% asterisk, that's about 48% asterisk below expectation <laughs> for you and most championships, I feel like, or most events uh, out there in the sports that's world. Right, so, like, that really is sort of like a very low asterisk well, they beat Alabama. If they hadn't beat, for Eric. If they hadn't beaten an SEC team, like, let's look, nothing personal, Kate. You're going to take this the wrong way. But let's say Michigan instead had beaten Texas and Washington. I'd be at the 50% asterisk point. I would be. I'd say, ah, you beat the Big 12 and the Pac-12. Big deal. Let's say you beat an SEC powerhouse team. Well, they beat Alabama, who beat Georgia. So that's And they beat Ohio State. So I'm saying, I agree with you, Shane. I normally put more asterisk. I would love to see them play Georgia. And I'm pretty sure that Massey Peabody or other power rankings, I mean, it's hard to know, but they basically would, uh, I assume Georgia would still be ranked ahead of Michigan. Well, that's well, that's actually my my question. They, they, perhaps I have to go back. And, I don't I don't know that that's true. By the end of the, this was not a season. We often have the number one team up in the low thirties, and often they are two, three, four points above the next best team. And that was not the case this year. They they were often in the high twenties. Michigan really snuck up there. If you remember, Bill Connolly on our show last week said that going into this week. He thought his his SP plus was going to show Michigan favor by like 12 or something. So it's not like they were categorically different than the top of the SEC this year. Michigan really was kind of out there. Um, but I, Shane, I appreciate your comment there because I was getting ready to get riled up. And then I realized he really wasn't complaining that much. He wasn't complaining as much as I expected him to complain about the whole matter. But it's, it's, it's interesting you put it that way, Eric, because this was the last time that I mean, you can complain about who they have to play. But when we have four rounds of playoff games the room for complaints are going to be a lot less. Somebody might get lucky, but you have to win multiple games now. It really is fundamentally different going forward than it has been historically. Adi. So we talked um, earlier about the balance between resume and eye test. Um, and so Eric's 98% deserved, I guess, is one way to turn around it without using the <laughs> That's right. That's um, right. Is, uh, is a reflection of that balance. But if you had to put more in the in the – I guess the eye test, which is our way of calling your your true talent. The people's team. champions, the ones that look the best on paper, but not necessarily on the field right. itself. So if yeah. you had to what? rank the, the if you had to rank the teams now, um, would you would you I guess Eric place Georgia as number one? 
I don't think so. I, I don't think George, I think Cade said it the best, whether it was through Massey Peabody, et cetera. I didn't hear Cade talking all season that Georgia was in the 30s. I think Georgia won a few games maybe that they shouldn't have necessarily won either. Um, I, no, I don't think so. I just said that's the game. I, I would put them at a comparable level. I'd like to see that game. And no, I, I don't think the eye test would favor. As a matter of fact, I think I would argue after seeing the last three games, Ohio State, Alabama, and Washington, that Michigan is an extraordinarily well-balanced team, that they have a good defense and good offense. And I don't think – I think they would be competitive against any team. So, no, I, I don't think the eye test would suggest George over Michigan. Okay, because competitive is really not that hard because there's so much variance in football. So you, what you're saying is that you don't even think they're the best. That's just good. I would agree. All right, guys, let's shift gears to the NFL, and we are now into the knockout rounds there, so there's no need to speculate. We're going to see it play out on the field. Well, we can speculate about whether the best team didn't win or not, but we don't hear that as much in the NFL. As we roll into the playoffs, what are you guys expecting? We have Baltimore and San Francisco sitting week one out. I've looked at a lot of probabilities around the Internet and, and the betting markets, and they're doing better than double the average probability of the other teams or even double the, the the probability given the next best team. So they are both seen as the strength in their conferences plus the buy. And so they're coming in at 25, 30, 35% chance of winning this whole thing. What do y'all think? What are your, what questions do you have? What are you interested in as we roll into the first round of the playoffs? There's a lot of really great matchups in this first round. I mean, like Matt Stafford going back to Detroit for their first playoff game and, you know, like 20 plus years. That's incredible. Um, I'm really intrigued by the Cleveland Brown, the, the Browns versus Texans game, because these yeah. are two teams, obviously none of us really necessarily saw there. And they both have, you know, unusual quarterbacking performances this year. Obviously what CJ Stroud did is, has done as a rookie is incredible. What Joe Flacco's done the last four games is pretty incredible. So that I think is like, talk, talk about kind of a high variance matchup. I'm really, I'm, that's the one I guess I'm most excited about. I'm thinking more of the overall, you know, going to the Super Bowl, winning the Super Bowl. I just have a perception that Baltimore and San Francisco, especially at home, are maybe I'll use your college analogy you just used, Kate, are at least a notch or two above everyone else. So I'm trying to picture in my mind, do I think anyone can compete with those two teams? Like, can Kansas City or Buffalo knock off Baltimore in Baltimore? Can Dallas I, I don't think anybody but Dallas really has a great chance of beating San Francisco. I just don't think the talent level's enough. So I'm just wondering, are any of those teams able to compete, or are we literally at a, I'll make it up, would you put 40%, 50% probability on a Ravens-San Francisco Super Bowl? Is that I too would, much? That's I, too I, much I, probability? You go ahead, It would have to be too much. But, but let's, separate, let's separate your two points. And we can just look at Massey Peabody rankings as one set that – are fairly representative. This is only through week 17, so it doesn't collect week 18, which is fine in this case because Baltimore and San Francisco sat their best players. But we see a real separation between Baltimore and San Francisco, who are up there at like 10 and a half, 11 against an average team on a neutral field, plus 10 and a half, 11. And then Buffalo and Dallas below that at like six and a half. So you're seeing a four point separation, which you don't typically see. And that's on a neutral field, and now they're at home. And that's right. So you're looking at touchdown kind of according to Massey Peabody. Now, you know, we're going to talk to Kevin Cole. Kevin's numbers don't agree quite the same with me. But if you throw them together, and I, I, I pulled together Neil Payne, our friend of the show, Neil Payne, is kicking out his own Sims these days. You can find him on the Messenger. And he posted his updated Sim coming into the playoffs. Ravens, 35% chance to win the Super Bowl. 49ers, 26% chance to make it, getting closer to – Eric's question over 50 for the Ravens right at 50 for the 49ers, but that just says 25% Eric, right. even for a model that yeah. thinks that those guys are quite and that, that's about kind of like my intuition is that even yeah. in a year where the number one seeds look particularly dominant, and this is definitely the, that a year like that, I wouldn't give the number one seeds more than like 50% chance to get to the Super Bowl. you know, cause they still have to win two games. And yeah. so, I mean, again, to sort of stretch those two games out so you'd have a much greater than 50% chance, you're giving them real high odds and like, you know, against, I mean, yes, I, I, all indications point to them being the best two teams, but play, a lot can happen in the playoffs, injuries, et cetera, game flow, you know, all that so, variance we talked about. Is, 
a good introduction to one thing I want to do, digging into some numbers, something that Rufus and I do sometimes at the end of the year is we go back and generate game grades for each week of the season. And it gives you a, a week by week look at how a play, how a team performs. And you can look at that in one of two ways. You can look at the longitudinal course that a team goes through over those 17 or 18 weeks, which is fun. We've looked, you know, trends look compelling, but mostly trends aren't predictive. We've had a hard time using trend. So this idea of momentum doesn't have a lot of evidence. But another way to do it is just to consider that those game level realizations as draws from a distribution that each team has a, a range of possibilities when they walk out on a field some Sunday. Some teams have a higher mean. Some teams have a lower mean. There might be some differences in variance, but they're all going to get some draw. And there's uncertainty on any given Sunday which draw they're going to get from their distribution. And if you look at the 16 performances we see over the course of a season, now 17 performances we see, you get a range of these outcomes. And so I, I, one of the things you can do is look at this. And so I, I threw together a little visualization for y'all. And, it, you, and it's, it's, it's still early stage, but basically just ran a ridge plot for each conference, which shows the 16 or 17 game grades that we give each team. And it's just based on, based on the fundamentals. It's not what happened with the scoreboard. It's what happened on the field. If you play that out a thousand times, this is what the scoreboard would look like. Historically, this is what we'd expect from a team that, you know, had that EPA or whatever. So, when you look at the distributions, I think they start I start getting kind of interesting. And the big point is, man, there's a lot of variation. Even the teams that are clearly best, like San Francisco, still has a lot of variation. So if you look at this ridge plot for the NFC, the thing that stands what stands out is a question for me to you guys. What stands out? The one thing that most stands out in the NFC is the right tail on San Francisco's distribution. Yep. There's one team with a strong right tail and none of the other NFC teams have this tail and it's San Francisco. And it's really, it really stark, isn't it? Yeah. That I is would, really I mean, stark. It's really interesting. Yeah. You know, I was just going to say to what uh, Shane just said. Also the two things I was looking at was in, in these plots were the right tail and the narrowness of the distribution. Those are the two things that, you know, you get really excited about. And what's interesting though, is as you pointed out, um, just since we're on the, you know, we're on the radio slash podcast here, there is still a lot of mass overlapping, though. 100%. Like when you say to yourself, well, San Francisco, let's say, by the way, let's say it goes according to chalk, which means one, you know, two, three and four win, which means my Tampa Bay Buccaneers end up going to San Francisco. Look, that's going to be ugly. But if we look at the Massey Peabody plot, the, the these overlapping distributions, I don't know. There's probably this is to Shane's point. Probably a fifteen or twenty yeah. percent probability the Buccaneers win. It'd be that like game. the Buccaneers rolled into the link in like two thousand and three or whatever that was. You know, that's probably a similar kind of matchup that went for the you know went for the underdog. Well, so this is this is I think my main point, and one of the reasons I thought it was worth bringing up on the show today is that we talk some of this. It's it's become a theme, and it's one of Eric's marketing themes is intra team variation. We focus so much on inter team variation. We look at ranking teams, looking at differences in means, but we don't look enough at how a team with one team varies week in, week out. And it's massive. And it means that there's this huge overlap on what you might get from any two teams which walk, who walk out on the field. If you look at the NFC distribution, San Francisco, I mean, Tampa Bay looks a little low and San Francisco's got this right tail, but the other five teams are almost the same distribution. I mean, it, it makes me think that the other games are really coin flips and you shouldn't be surprised, but also it just reminds me, it's a, it's a, it's a physical manifestation of what we saw in the college football playoffs where you got one performance from Washington. I say this with some bitterness because I'm a longhorn. You got Washington delivered their best performance of the year, like absolutely pegged the meter in the semis. And then average at best the next week in the title game. And it's the same team, same players. You know, they're, they're running backs hurt, but it's like a huge intra-team variation. And we underestimate that. It means that we should be less sure about what's going to happen when these playoffs get going. This is why people like in-game betting. That's true. You start trying to guess what team, what draw did we get from that distribution? <laughs> exactly. All right, guys. Well, that's what we can do here on the first half. We've got a second half to go. Come back and join us after the break you're listening to Wharton Moneyball on business radio welcome back to Wharton Moneyball welcome to the second half 
of this week's Wharton Moneyball. As you guys know, our routine is to bring a guest on in the second half of the show. And we are this week being in the first week of the playoffs, NFL playoffs. We thought we'd talk NFL. Kevin Cole, longtime guest, longtime friend of the show. Kevin Cole is our guest in this half hour. Kevin is a terrific football analyst. He's a terrific follow. He's got a Substack going these days, which is super interesting, including a I don't know how often he kicks out this newsletter, but Unexpected Points newsletter, which is reliably interesting. We encourage you to follow Kevin in all these forms. But for the next half hour, we get to talk to him in in person, not quite in the flesh, but in person. Kevin, welcome to the show. Well, thank you for having me. I was saying before, um, one of my favorite pods to listen to. And I can think of at least one moment this year where I heard something and when you guys were talking with Luke Bourne and a lot of stuff that's going on with him and his different ownership where, you know, it's like an epiphany sort of type of situation. So it's one of those pods that brings about that. So hopefully. Okay. I hold on. We only, what, what epiphany was this? What epiphany was this, Kevin? Do you remember? Well, it was like a confirmations of what my process is a little bit slash epiphany. And I think you guys were asking him what he can do in a kind of process, structural sort of way to cut down on what bias may be. And he mentioned that he does not watch the games mm. and the, until after he's perused through presumably his proprietary uh, numbers that he has on that. Mm. And I do something pretty similar to that because I'm writing up a lot about what's going on with the early games during the late games. And I miss some of the the evening stuff, and you'd be very surprised, even for someone like myself, when you have all that information in front of you and you've dug through it first, and then you watch the game, you come away with a vastly different perspective. And that's probably why whenever my um, ideas differ from the crowd, you know, everyone yells at me to watch to watch the games. And I'm saying, hey, I, I do, but I'm looking at something else first, which maybe you guys aren't looking at. Well, you know, hold on. It's really interesting. I, I, I knew that was going to rile up some opinions. I want to hear Eric's about to jump in. I'm just, I'm I'm curious. Do you think there's any, I think I might've pushed Luke on this in that conversation. Do we know that one of those sequences is better than the other? Or is it simply that we always, we, t- we tend to watch the game first. And so you're, you and Luke are talking about doing it differently, still watching the game, but looking at numbers first, doesn't mean that that's necessarily right. It's just that it's different than we usually do. Is that, is that, fair is that is that and then eric why don't you jump in because i think you might be on a related point no if related means exactly the same then i guess they're related i was just going to say it seems like this is you know what kate's just described and whether it's his home department of oid or my home department of marketing that this is like a classic experiment someone would do that you randomize the order of information people receive and then you create some set of out of sample metrics like you could look at point spread predictions or new rankings or whatever forecasts you're going to make. And we could take a look and see whether there's any change in, you know, whether it's a B or B a, I'm just wondering if someone has done that. I mean, let me just tell you, Kevin, to your credit, I guess it's the same thing. Um, I've served as editor and area editor of many journals. I never read other people's opinions before coming to my own. So I always let the data speak, which to me is the article. And then I watch the movie, which I'll or watch the show, which I'll call the reviews of the other people. And then I integrate <laughs> it into my own. I've never, ever, ever read someone else's opinions or seen a separate information source until I formed my own. But I don't well, know. Eric, Kevin, that's yeah. that's canonical. Good, good decision making, good judgment. This one feels a little I mean, I, I love the analogy, really. And it's entertaining as hell. But this one feels different in that we don't know what we should give primacy. Right. I mean, yeah, right. they, they, yep. they are complementary sources of information. How do you think about it, Kevin? Well, I, I think about and this is I think the exact term that Luke used was a ground truth. And that probably sounds, you know, a bit overstated or a bit arrogant to some people to say, hey, we, we have the truth here, you know, down yeah, from the mountain for <laughs> coming, coming and what we're being told. But I do think that could be part of the idea of if you say a certain team offensively when it comes to the NFL and we, let's say we use expected points added because that's kind of like the new term. I mean, that is telling us somewhat of a truth and then you can get a lot of the contextual elements of that from from watching the game so that's why i would order it in that fashion i would order it in okay this is what we know about the game and now as we're watching it 
how may it tell us better how to apply what we've learned, these kind of ground truth statistics. If they say this offense added more points than the other offense, well, we can start to look to say, okay, how, how many additional points of variance may have happened that aren't built into our numbers? How many times is it a particular player that's doing something where if you took him or her out, that might have a, an effect on things. And it's just, it takes a lot longer to watch a game and it's more, um, it is separated out piece by piece than it is when you're getting a whole number that's synthesizing all of a game at once. So that's why I would always go I, you the could numbers also, first and then the game second. You could also, Kevin, come up with the opposite argument, which is I could generate a bunch of hypotheses from watching the game, and then I look to confirm or not those hypotheses using the ground truth objective data. But I, I, I do see your point, but one could argue the opposite order of scientific inquiry. Yeah, no, you could definitely go both different directions on that. But I think the uh, one other thing that I'll mention, this is separate from trying to figure out what the truth is or not. I do think it helps, at least for me, going in this order to maybe find things that are missing or errors or corrections that you may even have in your process and your methodology. And you're saying, oh, you know, I, I make this adjustment, but we're starting to, I'm finding as I'm watching the game that it doesn't really apply in the same way that I thought it did. So let me go in and, and, and make and make a and make a change where you could do that in the reverse order, but you'd have to to be kind of taking more copious notes, I think, during the process of watching and then going back into the modeling afterwards. I, I love the idea. I think that 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 makes kind of any order okay or, or palatable if you're saying, look, I'm going to try going this way, but I know I'm going to be wrong. No, no matter what direction I go, I'm going to have some misconceptions. And so I need yeah. to stay open and change. Um, the other thing that's interesting to me about this is that it's a great way to learn. Um, I, and in recent, this is going to be a confession. I think I've made this confession on the show before, but you know, in football, I don't, of course, numbers are helpful to me after I've watched the game, but I process the game reasonably sophisticatedly and for a lay person. But if you put me in basketball, despite having watched basketball and played basketball my entire life or hockey, despite loving watching hockey, I'm missing a lot of what's going on, even after sitting there for the whole period or for the whole half, almost every time I go to an NBA game. At the at halftime, I'm like, can someone tell me what just happened? I just watched the whole thing, but I want to know the ground truth is Kevin or Lucas. I want to know like the fundamentals, like what, where I think this is what I saw, but I mean, I really need help from the numbers, but because I'm just less sophisticated about that sport. Adi. I'm just, you know, listening to you guys discuss this and, and, and thinking about some of the work that I've done, is there enough information watching a full season's worth of Super Bowl of, of football to actually know the ground truth if such a thing existed? Meaning, can you really, can our eyes do it? Is there enough information there to figure out who's, who's really better than another team? Or is, that, or is the randomness so, so sufficiently large that we can't really do it and everything is always up to some uncertainty bound? Yeah, and to give to give a kind of a real example to toss around for that discussion is C.J. Stroud an elite? Like, is this rookie season that we just saw from him is that the ground truth for what we have with C.J. Stroud now, or is that just an exceptionally good year and mostly variance? I mean, just to follow up on that, just for that specific point, I mean, imagine some in uh, in statistics we often call them oracles, right? Um, but imagine there's a divine power, an oracle who'd watch the same season. Could that, uh, but can't, you know, is limited, right? So, so can't tell the difference between skill and, but just gets to see everything and is, is basically as smart as you possibly can. Could that person know where there's, where the Stroud really is great? Well, or, let me ask, I'll ask Luke, I'll ask Kevin a question. Kevin, right now, you're the, the Chicago Bears offer the number one pick to the Houston Texans. I say there's no chance at all that they would trade C.J. Stroud for the number one pick in the draft, and it's not even close. Do you agree with that? I, I agree with that, yeah. I mean, I think my my idea when it comes from the draft in that status versus when we have some actual evidence in the NFL is um, changes pretty quickly based upon what, what we see in the NFL. I mean, I, I think – if you even see this in the discussion, and part of this will be like Justin Fields and the discussion there for what they should do with him, which is kind of a whole different thing. It goes far beyond that now that we have three years of history with him. But I think what happens, at least in most people's minds, is you have the examples, some of the outlier examples, like maybe a Josh Allen or someone like that who struggles for a couple of years and then does well, which people kind of overweight in their minds when they're thinking about things versus the fact that most elite quarterbacks are pretty good pretty quickly 
Um, you're not eliminated from being elite if you're not good quickly, but just by a probabilistic way of looking at it, it's a much, much higher chance if you are good right out the box versus a quarterback that we know nothing about. So yeah, I would be, I would say the Bears, and this is again, the thing, thinking about their decision from last year where they had the number one pick, right? I mean, they didn't have to take Bryce Young. If they would have taken CJ Shroud without making that trade back right there, that would have been the best possible place they could be in, I think, at this point in time, even though they have the number one pick going into this draft. The, the, but the challenge, though, is yes, but it's so context dependent. I mean, the, the guys that happen to be on good teams or with teams that with coaches that have ways of using their skills are just privileged. And we're not we're not natural as humans at decontextualizing performance. And even the experts, there are so many different factors. Even the experts would have trouble. I mean, You've got the the quarterback's play depends on the offensive line protection, the quality of the defense that's attacking him, the receivers that he has, the tight end that he has, the defenders that are on those tight ends and receivers, the running back distraction, how the coach deploys him in general and on that day. I mean, it's just an, it's an unlimited number of contextual considerations. I mean, how could we ever even our models have a hard time with that? And we train them up specifically to deal with it. I mean, I don't think it's, again, it's, we don't know, we don't have this truth, but we have a degree of certainty. It's just having the proper d- degree of certainty when we're thinking about this. And um, especially when we're talking about versus draft picks, when we have even a much, much lower degree of certainty there. So, I, I, I mean, I, I agree with a lot of what you're saying, and that becomes one of the big uh, knocks on when we talk about expected points that is people say well it's a team stat it, it incorporates all those different things that you're talking about it's not only a team stat it's the, the defenses you're playing the schedule you're playing the coaches that you have all those sorts of things so we, we can try to peel out as much as as much as we can out of that I try to make some adjustments based upon that but generally we're really just looking at you know past correlations and what we've seen with these quarterbacks in the past and for the most part again for the most part these guys are good to really to start off their their careers and that ends up happening. So I think that's an important thing to consider when you have a great rookie season. All right, let, let me while we have Kevin, let's talk let's take him into a territory that he thinks about a lot and is super relevant right now and that is front offices and coaching. Um yesterday was Black Monday in the NFL, the day the day after the regular season's over. In fact, not all teams even waited for Monday to roll around before coaches started getting fired. GMs either getting fired or retained in some circumstances. Kevin's got opinions. In fact, he's been riling people up today about Vrabel. And I, I just want let me start by saying I saw Salfino jumped into your into your into your responses on one of your notes. I think let me try to remember what Michael Salfino said. He said, "Look, man, uh, doesn't matter if coaches is sophisticated analytically. Let the let those guys go play on personnel." What really matters is using those tools to get the right personnel in the building. And the coach, I mean, whatever. And these are now my words. You geeks can worry about fourth down policy all you want. That's secondary to what a coach does game day and getting a team ready for game day. Y'all are worrying too much about that. And that's a little bit more than Michael said, but it's close. And I thought it was provocative. I think it's it's theoretically true you know that what we know about coaches and the things that we can really judge them on presuming that they're not the offensive play caller and even then I think people may have a little bit too much of like a results bias on whether or not someone's good as a play caller or a schemer based upon what has happened Uh, but I think he is right but at the same point a coach is the figurehead of an organization and a coach which who ends up being successful is just naturally going to gain a lot more power and that power is going to bleed through to personnel and other places. I mean, is there a true, I don't know, um, philosopher king coach who can say, you know what? Everyone respects me so much. I have all this power. Uh, we're in the NFL draft. I have an opinion that differs from the GM, but you know what? I'm just going to sit back and not say anything and not do anything and not pound the table for this trade, which may not be great by our trade value and so on and so forth. I, I just don't know if there's any coach who, who would actually fulfill those those responsibilities. Mm-hmm. I think that's fair and an interesting point, but I'll take, I'll take Michael's a little, uh, go back on his and say, look, on the coaches per se, we in this community have decided that we can measure, you know, analytic sophistication by four or five different means, four or five different variables of game day decision making. And now we start measuring coaches. In fact, we can start saying here is wins added by their fourth down decision making a two point and, you know, timeout policy or whatever. But then we have Mike Tomlin 
who just made the playoffs for the you know 99th year in a row or whatever he had, no matter what personnel that team gives him. And that's not a sophisticated organization historically. Are we just the classic looking under the, the, the lamppost for our watch or whatever, when, because this is what we can see. And there are all these other qualities of a coach that we can't measure. And so we're kind of dismissing. Um, yeah, I think that there's a problem with that. I mean, but, but there are like, there are measurable qualities, which may not be that important that we can measure much better. And those are things that you're talking about, like maybe fourth down decision, maybe run past mix. Uh, if they do have input into personnel, we can see that a little bit better, what they've been doing in the draft and trading and free agency and so on. So those are things that we can measure really well, but are not the most important things. Uh, the problem is the important things we we almost can't measure at all. I mean, we we could maybe measure a very slight bit. I think a lot of it would come to um, references and talking to people who know them. And again, stuff that we're not really privy to when it comes to a lot of those different things. And the only research that I could find on this, and I've tried to replicate a little bit myself, is done by um, Andrew Healy, who now works with the Cleveland Browns. And he had done this before, uh, back when he was a, you know an academic trying to, now he's on the inside. Now he's a, so now he's real a, quickly. Andrew Healy is a PhD in economics who was tenure track in a university and left that to go work for the Browns back in the day. Still there. Yeah, still there. So I think he's been there since, I don't know, 2017 or something, something like that. Um, and he had research where he looked at overperformance for teams by by coordinator, so by unit. And when they came in, how well did they do? And then he also looked at second time or third time head coaches and how they overperformed. Um, and I did a similar thing with kind of like how you project out their their EPA per play by different units and so on. So basically coordinator, the link between coordinator outperformance and then when they became head coach was nothing. There's it, it's all over the place. No one could tell anything there. And, and, but there was something for head coaches who had been successful in the past who then are successful in the future. So that's probably giving us a little bit of a window into the unmeasurable effects that we cannot figure out. And these, and there are all these different things that coaches are doing as head coaches that they didn't do as offensive coordinators before. So that's the best we can do. But when we're talking about first time head coaches, it gets a little bit more difficult and we still have a very, very high degree of uncertainty with that. Let me Adi, real quickly, but just real quickly building on that and jumping back to college football, the two guys who played for the title last night, we're recording this on Tuesday, Washington, Michigan played last night. Washington coach, longtime NAIA, multiple national championships, crazy winning record. Harbaugh, of course, with Washington has built programs from, you know, tragically bad three times in a row in college and once with San Francisco. So you're talking about a track record. Those two guys are perfectly um, illustrating your track record point, Adi. So, yeah, I mean, so this is, of course, what we, we've come to expect, right? You try to do an analysis with the data that you have and you basically find nothing and of course, be careful with that because absence of evidence isn't the same as evidence of absence. And with the enormous amount of noise and the confounders that are buried in this, it's almost expected that we wouldn't find anything because the signal is ultimately not that large. I mean, even if, at least in, in my kind of, kind of layperson's opinion. So I want to ask you almost an opinion question. I mean, just what your, your thoughts. Supposing you really did have great insight into coaches, this stuff that you talk about that we can't really measure, you have to have these recommendations and this, this deep knowledge. Imagine you, you had this great, great insights. Do you think that with that information, and this is really an opinion because of, frankly, I don't think we have an analysis, that there is fundamentally a big differences between coaches? Um, I would say yes, but at the same point in time, um, I think the, I mean, this is a little bit theoretical. So you can see whether you guys of agree course. to this or not when it comes to anything that's like an intellectual type of pursuit. And it's not even a rapid intellectual pursuit. It's not like playing a game of, I don't know, speed chess or something like that. Like there's a lot more time and um, planning that can, that can go into it is that they're like, there are harder limits on talent than there are maybe on what, sort of attributes you would bring to being a coach in my opinion like you know you can't like coach up someone to run faster coach up someone to make more better split second decisions as a quarterback or or something like that like there's some there's something about talent and i think we could be that's why we're more confident that a great player is one of the greatest players in the world versus a great coach is one of the greatest coaches in the world is that there are just attributes and i think we've seen this across the nfl that if there is innovation and maybe that coach who innovates is really something maybe like the the uh Kyle Shanahan's the world is really something 
But you know what? I can just go and like steal what Kyle Shanahan is doing in a way. And if I implement it well and I have the organizational skills to do that, that can kind of it kind of come through there. So I think it's hard in that sort of way. Now, again, I don't have insights into what people have found by these behind the scenes types of studies, but I know uh, Joe Banner, who used to work with the Eagles, with Jeff Lurie when he was first there. Um, one of his stories, and again, we're talking about, you know, a very successful head coaching hire of Andy Reid that they, that they brought in there, but he was a quarterback's coach at the time. He wasn't a hot coordinator or one of these sorts of things, but they said the reason they found him is that their internal studies that they did found that someone who is meticulous and detail oriented to the point of driving everyone insane was kind of the (laughs) attribute that they found as someone who could be a successful head coach. And Andy Reid was one of those sorts of persons. Um, So I'm not saying that, you know, that's something that's easy to measure or we can figure it out. But I do think maybe if you get inside of these buildings, you can get an idea about something like that. And that'll be especially different than what we get in interviews or college coaches who can recruit really well or those sorts of things that can really project something to us, which may not have much of a value at all when it comes to actually being a coach. Yeah. So, Kevin, we're obviously in the uncertainty business. That's the business we're in, right? So if I asked you to put a higher certainty on which of the two statements, I'm interested in your opinion. One is, that C.J. Stroud is a really good quarterback, or that, make sure I get the right one, Jim Harbaugh is a really good pro coach. Now, we have four years of data from Harbaugh. Now, of course, you just said there's lots of things that are going into the coach. He also had really good players. He has the highest winning percentage, I'm sure you guys all know this now, they said it last night, of any coach in the history of the NFL that's coached more than like 30 games. He's won like 73% of his games. So would you rather have Jim Harbaugh four years with the San Francisco 49ers or CJ Stroud one year with the Texans? The reason I'm asking is they're, I'm relating it to your point about one is about an individual and one is about a coach. We have more games for one than the other. I'm trying to just understand how you think about sources of variation. But your question is, which are you more sure of? Not which you'd yeah. rather have. Yeah, not, which are you more sure which of? Which are you more sure of? Okay, everybody should have an opinion about this, by the way. It's a great question. Kevin? Uh, I mean, still Stroud for me. Um, I, I just You're have much sure less. I just I have much less certainty in coaches. You know, this happens. I remember, I can think of a few good examples where, again, we're not, we're not exactly getting the most scientific data, but they'd have, you know, Twitter polls or something like that. I can think about when the the Celtics were playing extremely well, and um, why am I forgetting his last name? Brad, who was, who was the head coach who Stevens. went into the Stevens? Yeah, Brad Stevens. Right. So it was like, would you rather have Brad Stevens or LeBron? And like Brad Stevens was winning these balls that they have because because he was coaching so well there. So, I mean, so there's two different things. One, I, I, it's hard to gather from performance. What does this mean for the for, for the coach? And the coach is much more dependent upon, I think, his players than others. I mean, even Harbaugh's success. At Michigan is probably a lot about recruiting Harbaugh's success for the 49ers, uh, partially about his coaching, partially about the fact that he had Colin Kaepernick during this period of time where the defenses had not caught up also to what Kaepernick and, and others were doing with that system there. So there's that. Number two is just the filtering mechanism to even get to being an NFL coach versus an NFL quarterback, I think is much more precise for players like the cream rises to the top more so as a high school player than a high school coach and same for a college player and then same to even get into the NFL and then show us what you can do in the NFL whereas like theoretically there are a thousand coaches out there maybe not a thousand theoretically there are a hundred coaches out there if you pulled them from different ranks and in coaching that if you put them into the NFL they could be successful I don't know if that's the case for quarterbacks and and what what measure what fundamentals do we use for coaches that are the equivalent of like accuracy and like you know all this other stuff? I mean, I think I I mean to kind of push on what Adi said before, where like you know it, it's in a hopelessly confounded experiment. You'll never be able to learn about a head coach versus a coordinator. I mean, there is obviously a lot of confounding in in in, in the data for that, but just mechanistically, you can look at so many you know that that it's obvious the set of skills for head coaching are different than the set of skills for coordinators. And we've seen a myriad of people over time that have been excellent coordinators that have not succeeded as head coaches, you know, and have gone back to be excellent coordinators. I just kind of think, you know, again, it's that it's different enough skill set and the skills themselves are other than out the outcomes of winning. Like what, how are you, me- how, how else well, do you kind of measure I, them? I just disagree with the premise. It's hopeless. Let me just ask Shane, our listeners here on Wharton money bowl are screaming at me to ask you the following question. Would you not agree 
that the luster, the rank, the certainty of Bill Belichick has been diminished over the last four years because his record without Tom Brady is not good. And so if Belichick was that good a coach, why is he doing so poorly without Tom Brady, both at the beginning of his career with Cleveland and the end of his career without him? So you have to admit there's something we've learned well, it's, about it's, Belichick. Yeah, but it's like a, a chicken and egg thing. Like, you, you, sure, sure, sure. But I mean, like, it's, I, I mean, I would love to hear other takes on this. But I mean, Our he, listeners he's, want your he's take. both a coach and a GM. And, 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 and there's so many different things going on behind the scenes there that it's very hard, I think, to evaluate his particular skills in any one area other than watching him game to game and knowing that he's obviously excellent in-game coach. It's fascinating that we had the experiment because for the longest time, it was perfectly, not perfectly, but almost perfectly confounded with Brady. And um, history will have opinions about this. While we still have Kevin, and we've only got a couple of minutes with Kevin, uh, are there any particular vacancies around the league that you're especially interested in? And then I'm curious about everybody's opinion on what Josh Harris has done, new owner of the Commanders, goes out and contracts with Bob Myers, who ran the Warriors through however many titles, four titles through that whole era, only recently retired there. He hires a basketball executive to help put together the team, the front office that he's rebuilding in Washington. What do y'all think? Kevin, and then what do the other guys think about this as well? These guys, some of these guys have been around Harris, have some opinions, basketball guys, whatever. This cross sport bit is interesting, but Kevin first. Yeah. It's funny that you mentioned the commanders because they would be one of the most interesting jobs for me uh new ownership uh turnover of everything you're gonna have a new stadium in a few years number two overall pick in a year where we have two at least as of now we're thinking uh top tier type of prospects either one of whom would have probably gone first last year but again i'd rather have stroud knowing what we know now (laughs) versus those two but let's think it you know stroud was the guy that the texans last year said okay fine i'll take him he's left i'll take him and look where they are right now showing the kind of coin flip nature of these different of these different picks so about as good of a position you can be from that perspective so i think that's very interesting ownership is good uh i'm not quite as like sure necessarily about ownership but i do think if you wanted to be even more certain of being successful as a head coach uh, i would look at the chargers job with justin herbert there i mean anytime you can go into a position and people have different opinions on how good Justin Herbert is. I mean, I think he is that good. I think he is like one of these young elite quarterbacks. Um, I don't have the information right in front of me, but the other day I looked through and I said, okay, how often does someone come in as a head coach with a, someone who's an established elite quarterback, how well do they do? And they almost always do well because they win games as having that type of quarterback. So that type of situation seems like that might even be a higher rung type of situation um, then going into the commanders and having the number two pick who could, you know, be Zach Wilson or someone like that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Curious guys about the, the Meyer situation. Do y'all think this is a helpful thing? Is it, a, is it, is it just strange or what's your opinion on bringing Bob Myers in to help staff the new commanders front office? I, I just, I only have a couple sentences. I think great leaders can lead. I think people that can, in, you know, can listen and can uh, evaluate people. And I think those talents are transferable. So um, I think that's a very interesting choice. I think I, I think it has a very high probability of being successful. I like the idea. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I have nothing against cross sports. I mean, I think, you know, as, as Eric pointed out, I think there's a lot of brilliant people in a lot of industries that are not, you know, necessarily restricted to that industry, whether this particular hire, whether the per- the skills and, and brilliance they showed in basketball transfers to football with a very different kind of payroll situation that I am, I'm fascinated by it. I have no idea though. Well, I actually have one comment on, on Myers. And again, I'm always like the, you know, a little bit of contrarian sort of, sort of guy when it comes to this. Everyone loves Myers. So we know where Kevin is. <laughs> so I, I, it just, again, this would just be like, I don't know. I'm going to give one of these, I don't know sort of situations. And when it comes to the Warriors, like, let's face it, like 98% of what they did as a dynasty was take Steph Curry when he was available to them at the end of the, you know, at the latter half of the top 10, which, you know, which they got that uh, take Draymond Green in the, in the second round of the, uh, of the draft. There's only two rounds, right? So it's a very, very low pick. 
and you know get Clay Thompson at a pretty good position too, um, maybe in the middle of the of the first round ish sort of thing. So I'm sure there's lots of brilliance involved in that. But uh, you know when 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 Lakeup and the other guys over there were talking about their light years ahead of everyone. I mean, maybe they are, but um, it they'll, they'll, that helps a lot to have that sort of situation happen. And of course, they were the counter to the Sam Hinkie, you tank and you draft the number one pick. They said, well, no, you just do what the Warriors do. You just draft, you know, the greatest players ever in positions where they normally aren't available. And, you know, that seems like less of a repeatable process to me. <laughs> well, when you say it that way... <laughs> Lots to unpack there. We don't have enough time here, but maybe later when uh, we come back, we didn't know we we're going to get Kevin to do an NBA take, but uh, we have we have room for NBA material soon. We're almost going to be out of NFL material. Hey, before you go, uh, Matty Dats was taking shots at Tepper on the chat, and it made me realize there was another question. I would love to hear from you before you go. We were talking about how much we've learned about Stroud this year. Yeah. How much have we learned about Bryce Young? Uh, a decent amount. A decent amount. Again, you can't eliminate him from being good, but I think it's it's very troubling. But we do have some guys, Jared Goff probably being one of them in recent memory, who was god-awful um, on a smaller sample, though. He didn't really start playing until, I don't know, midway through the season and ended up being pretty good. But we don't have a lot of history for guys who were that bad init- uh, initially ending up being good. And I think at whether he's, you know, whether I can say whether he'd be good or not or not, uh, I'm not quite sure. But I would say that, like, whatever's people's perception on him vis-a-vis Stroud, I would lean towards, you know, have more heavily towards Stroud and heavily against him than maybe some people think like it'll be a clean slate going into next year. All right. Well, I, I, only, I only say I would like to see him in a different context. And it's it seems so odd to have gone from as highly regarded in a college football environment to as poorly regarded in pro football being the same guy. And we underestimate context and we underestimate within player variation. But again, a topic for another day. Kevin Cole, thanks for making time, man. We always enjoy our conversations with you. Thanks for having me. Love the show. You can track him down. Kevin Cole's on Twitter. He has a terrific Substack called Unexpected Points. You can read him there. You can sign up for his weekly newsletter. That has been another hour of sports analytics here on Wharton Moneyball. For the whole crew, all of whom were in here for the duration, Shane Jensen, Audie Weiner, Eric Bradlow, this has been Cade Massey. Big thanks to Maddie. That's big thanks to Deion Simpkins. And a big thanks to you guys for listening. Come back and join us next time. Between now and then, enjoy your sports. <laughs>